Gracious Lord, we pray that this day you would open our hearts to your word, that you would show us what it is to celebrate the victory of Jesus, that he is ascended and reigning above all, and because of that we have peace and hope. We pray, Father, now that you would speak by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the things that I love about sports is the way that it can create communal experiences. Feelings of surprise as the underdog team pulls off an incredible upset. Shock as when a great team blows a giant lead and out of nowhere a comeback happens. Certainly feelings of sadness and resignation as your team loses Again, and again, and again. I will let you all apply that to whichever team you would like to. Stay above that fray. But then joy comes when victory finally happens. After years of waiting, finally a win. Many of you know that I am a Boston Red Sox fan. And for much of their history, they were defined by losing often in the most grueling way possible. There's one loss in particular where I have the, televi- the TV commentator's call embedded in my brain. It is stuck there. It will never leave. 1986. I was only five when it happened. I'll let that go. All right. Then it happened, finally. After 86 years of waiting... After becoming the first team to ever come back from a 3 to nothing deficit and dispatching with the despised and, dare I say, evil New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox made and won a World Series. It's October 27, 2004. It just happened to be my birthday. <laughs> Years of waiting finally over. A victory. It actually happened. Joy, relief, surprise, all of the emotions were coming out. I was a mess. And then, after all of that, you get to have the victory parade. There's nothing better than a victory parade. A whole city, it seems, just this giant group of people coming together with joy to celebrate An incredible accomplishment. In this case, something that nobody believed could ever happen. Now what does any of this have to do with Psalm 68? There is a point. I didn't just want to share a nice memory with you, though. That's always nice. For many of us, victory parades are things we only experience through sports. At least nowadays. But that has not always been the case. Some of us might remember the victory parades that came after the Second World War. I certainly remember the the newspaper articles and the the images that were captured of the soldiers who had returned home and just the incredible joy in the streets. Finally, peace had come. Well, that is exactly the sort of thing our song today commemorates. Psalm 68 is a song of victory. 
It was written by David to commemorate the victory of God and the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It is a victory march, a celebration. Finally, after years of fighting, victory has been achieved. The Lord has taken his place among his people, and peace can reign. And so David writes this psalm recounting how the Lord has worked to bring his people to this moment. From leading them out of Egypt, to conquering the land of Canaan, to now settling in God's holy city, Jerusalem. Sounds worthy of a parade, doesn't it? Certainly more so than a World Series title, even that Red Sox one, though it's close, admittedly. The Lord is victorious and his people celebrate. It seems at times that we Christians forget that our God is victorious. That he has in fact won. He has conquered and he reigns as our king. We often don't join in Paul's joy when he pronounces thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we most certainly should. We should celebrate and be glad that our God is victorious. And so this morning, we're going to join in the victory parade. We're going to look at the victories of God from Psalm 68. And we begin by seeing that God is victorious over his enemies. Our psalm begins, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Now I think we need to be honest about something after reading a, a passage like that. Christians these days can read verses like that and we can start to feel a little uncomfortable. Because it speaks of God having victory over his enemies. It speaks of people perishing. God dealing with them as easily as wind scatters smoke or fire melts wax. And in the immediate context, David is speaking about war. And that means real people being defeated, real people really dying. And so we read a passage like that and we think, how does that fit with this God who I'm told is love? This God doesn't seem like the Jesus I've been told about. Because Jesus loves people, right? And so he would have found a different way. He would have found a better way. And so therefore, they must be different. This God I read about in the Old Testament, he must be a different God than Jesus. And the result is, people do away with the God of the Old Testament in favor of what is, if we're honest, a caricature of Jesus. Jesus created in my personal image, not the Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. And that stems from a poor reading of passages like this and others. Yes, God is claiming victory, and David is celebrating him for it. When reading passages like this, or passages about hell and condemnation, we often read those thinking about the people we believe it would be unfair or unjust to condemn. 
Those people who we think simply don't know any better. Those people that have, at least in theory, never heard of Jesus, never heard the gospel. What about them? That's who we picture. But look at what's written here. That is not at all who David has in view in this psalm, is it? David names these people the enemies of God. This is not an ignorant or neutral people. The enemies of God are those who actively oppose God. Those who embrace sin and do whatever they can to prevent the work of the Lord from moving forward. Those who would rather see the name of the Lord erased than worshipped. Now perhaps it is because we have believed our culture to be Christian for so long that we have forgotten that there are genuine enemies of the Lord in this world. People who are living and breathing today who would like nothing more than to see every church torn to the ground and the name of Jesus blotted out rather than worshipped and glorified. We have forgotten about that. We have assumed that such a thing could not be true here. And we have forgotten about that because we have forgotten that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. In verse 3 we read this, But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. A couple things we want to point out. First, really quickly, notice that it is the righteous, right? The righteous who are glad here, they are those who believe in the Lord. You cannot be righteous apart from faith in our Father. It is as simple as that. And then our passage continues, and we have this sort of odd line, at least odd to us, about singing to the one who rides through the desert. Well, desert here could also be translated clouds. And so we could read this as riding on the clouds. And riding on the clouds is a symbol of divine power and authority. And it is a striking image, all the more so for the people of David's time, because those who in his context have been conquered, they were worshippers of Baal. And a part of Baal was being a storm god. And so by invoking this imagery of the Lord riding on the clouds or riding through the desert, David announces that the Lord is greater than all other gods. That the gods who oppose the Lord are like wax before the fire and they will be done away with. That is what David is taking joy in here, that God brings down the false gods, that he claims victory in the spiritual battle. Joy comes from remembering that the Lord has claimed victory over the spiritual forces that plague and enslave people. As Paul writes for us in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is a spiritual battle that we are in, one that God must win, and thanks be to God, he has won it. 
This battle is played out in our earthly lives. There is no question of that. And so sadly, there are human losses. It's how we can begin to make sense of what I've just said, that God has won the victory, and yet we still see losses. It is how we make sense that in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, victory has been won, but yet we wait still that final consummation. Some of you have heard me give this uh, example before, or use this image before, but we could think of it using Second World War imagery, that the cross itself was D-Day. The day when the war was over for all intents and purposes. The Nazis had been broken. It was over. But the fighting continued, didn't it? And it kept going until VE Day. When the war was finally, once for all, over in Europe. The Christian today lives between those days. Between the D-Day of the cross where Jesus conquered evil where the victory has been won. And yet we await the E-Day, when in his second coming he will put away all sickness and sadness and evil once for all. That is how we can claim the victory and yet still await with joy the greatest victory. That is the time we live in now. And so we can claim that victory now, though we wait the final consummation. But we do need to be clear that in claiming the victory of our Lord over the spiritual forces of evil, that is not about us gloating in it or lording it over those who are apart from God, but rather, in claiming the victory, we invite them to join in the victory parade telling them that they need not be part of the opposition anymore. They need not be opposed to the one true God. They too can have the joy of the Lord. They too can be freed from the plague of false religion as they come to know and to love Jesus. And the victory that he gives is even greater than the one that Psalm 68 speaks of. And to see that, we're going to jump to the end of our passage. We take joy in the victory of our Lord over his enemies, the spiritual forces that oppose him and those that serve those forces. But secondly, we celebrate that the Lord's victory is final. It is an ultimate victory. Look at verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. The first thing we want to notice here is the ascension of the Lord, right? That the Lord ascended with captives being freed, following him as he takes his throne. Now, again, in the immediate context, David is talking about the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwelt, taking its place in Jerusalem. This would announce to the people that their God had set them free from slavery, had given them a home and peace. That is something absolutely worth celebrating. But it gets even better. This moment is only a foretaste of the greater victory to come. Paul points back to this passage 
when he talks about Jesus' ascension in Ephesians chapter 4. He reminds us of the truth that Christ ascended, and in so doing, he has set the captives free, and he has given them the gifts, the gift of his grace primarily. The ascension, which the church commemorated this past Thursday, is admittedly one of the more forgotten feasts of the church. It does not have its place that it should alongside Christmas and Easter and the other feasts of the church. It should have that place because it is the, uh, the ascension that truly announces the freedom that Christ gives us as our ruler. That in his ascending to heaven, he has led the captives out of slavery, the slavery of sin and death, to live under his gracious rule for all time. That is what Christ has accomplished for us. That is what the ascension teaches us. And what is it that we who were captives are now freed from? Look at verses 19 and 20 in our psalm. We read, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Before the grace and work of Jesus Christ, people were slaves to sin and death. But now, since our Lord is risen and ascended, we who have faith in him are set free to live as his people under his gracious rule. We have been granted freedom from death to live with our Father forever. That is the ultimate victory. That is the spiritual victory that Psalm 68 foreshadows. David celebrated a wonderful victory. The people who had been wandering and have been lost for generations, they've been graciously found and gifted with a home to live and dwell in with the Lord. That is amazing. But it is nothing compared to the victory that we have in Christ. That for the Christian, we have been given the victory and the home that lasts for all eternity. You remember what I said, too, a moment ago about celebrating this victory, not as one who lords it over those who are apart from God, but inviting them in. Did you notice what was in verse 18, or did you skip past it? The Lord was leading the captives out. We love that part. We're going to focus on that part. But then we read, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. He was given gifts even among the rebellious. Friends, that is who we are apart from Jesus. We are the rebellious. And so for those of us who have been set free, who have submitted to Christ's rule and therefore found spiritual freedom, those who are enjoying the victory, we are to extend a hand to those who are still the rebel, to those who are in darkness and say, I was there too. But there is freedom and joy in the Father's presence. The church is meant to celebrate and enjoy the victory of our God without gloating, and without shame, we should not be embarrassed to claim the victory of Jesus. It's not bragging, it's not being arrogant, it is claiming the gift that is offered to us. It's okay to say it, we won. It's okay to say it. 
Take no shame in it. We have won because Christ has won. And in claiming that victory, we invite all of the captives to be set free. For if we are ashamed of claiming the Lord's victory, how will anyone ever know that victory has been won? If we ourselves won't say it, how will they ever know that Christ has won the victory that they so need? If the church is ashamed of it, if the church is afraid to speak of spiritual truths, How will anyone ever know what Christ has accomplished? And if they don't know, what are the consequences? Well, go back to the beginning of our psalm and you can read about it. There is spiritual freedom. Freedom from the forces that seek to rob, kill, and destroy our souls and our lives. That battle has been won by Christ. Celebrate. Celebrate his victory. So one last thing to celebrate this morning. Because the victory has been won, everything has changed. The world has been turned upside down in the best possible way. Normally we would use that phrase and it's for when everything's going wrong, right? My whole world's turned upside down and it's chaos. Well, if the world is already wrong, if everything is out of control, if everything is not as it should be, then turning it upside down is absolutely brilliant. Why would you ever want to keep going in the world that needs to be turned upside down? Why not come to the one who corrects it all? Look at verses 5 and 6. See the example of this upside down world. Beginning in verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. That is God turning the world to right. That is the nature and character of our God. Just think about it for a moment. Who are the most vulnerable in basically any society? Orphans, widows, the solitary, the lonely, those without any sort of community or connection, those that we push to the sidelines as often as we can. Those are the ones that our Lord brings in. Those are the ones that our Lord has a heart for. Those are the ones that our Lord loves when the world deems them as having little value. Those are the ones that the world sees as burdens, and yet the Lord blesses and loves. We could think of the image of our Lord Christ setting a child on his lap and teaching the disciples that if they want to be in the kingdom, they must become like one of them. Remember how he healed the lepers, how he embraced the outsiders of his time so that they might see and others might see through them that Christ came for the lowly, for those who know their need for Jesus. 
Because ultimately, that is what opposition to Jesus is. It's assuming we don't need him because we know better. That we can rule better. And in that fleshy saint, we'll call it, in that way of thinking, I sometimes look at stuff like this and I think, couldn't there have been a different way? Couldn't the Lord have done something else to bring redemption and overthrow the spiritual and temporal forces of darkness? But the only conclusion, if I am reading this honestly, if I am looking at my heart honestly, the only conclusion I can come to is no, there is no other way. Because left to our own hearts, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to create that world that we read about verses 5 and 6. We're not going to spend our time worrying about the least of these. We're not going to care for those that are seen as having little value. Rather, we will be like those of the pagan religions of Israel's time who sacrificed those who were seen as a burden. All to make our lives easier, more comfortable, better. Left to our own hearts, we will not care for the elderly, the poor, the homeless, the lonely. The list could go on and on. And we have centuries of evidence to prove that, never mind the anti-life laws that we embrace in our day and time. And so we needed divine intervention. We still need divine intervention. We need the Lord to conquer and claim victory over the spiritual forces that seek to rule this world. There is no other way than the victory of our God. There is no other way than Jesus. And that way is beautiful. It is the way of verses 5 and 6. It is the way of the world set right again. And so that is the victory that the church is to celebrate and to find joy in, not shy away from or be embarrassed by. It is the victory of the Lord who looks upon those who are most vulnerable and says, you are of endless value to me. You are not a burden to bear, but a person to love. The victory of the Lord that looks at the rebel and says, there is a place for you under my rule. Why would we not celebrate that victory? Why would we not celebrate that because of Jesus, the world has been and is being set to right? Why would we not extend the invitation to those who are on the sidelines to come in and celebrate with us to join in the victory parade? For it is in that victory that the captive is set free and the dead is raised to new life. That is the victory of Jesus. It is the victory we celebrate. And it is the victory we offer to the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the day.